Well, last week, I could kind of feel it in the room as we were ending that sermon together. Uh, We were longing together for holiness, for righteous lives. If you can remember even back to how things landed that week, if you were here, we looked at the lives of Elijah and Elisha and the power that they brought to the kingdom, the king even telling one of them, you are the real chariots and horsemen of Israel. And then we saw who those chariots and horsemen are today. Where's the power in the church rest today? Well, the book of James tells us it's in righteous people who pray. They have the power of Elijah. It's in the elders of the church when they gather together and pray. They have the power of Elijah in their prayers. And oh, how that left us. You could just feel it in the room, a desire to be holy together, to be the sort of people that make a difference for our generation and for the church with our holy prayers. If it left you there, And then maybe you woke up on Monday morning, and I know what this can be like. You can leave Sunday morning fired up, ready to live a holy life, and then you wake up Monday and you're back into your routine. And it's just so hard to live out the things that you heard proclaimed in the pulpit. That can be tough sometimes. And I wonder if that experience has left you just thinking to yourself, okay, I want to be holy I want to be one of those sorts of people who who their prayers, when it's offered up because of their righteousness, their prayers are powerful. I want to be that kind of person, but how do I actually grow into that kind of person? Uh, It can't just be trying harder. There's There's got to be something else to this, right? How do I become an Elijah and an Elisha in our generation? Well, we're going to look at that very question this morning. We're going to see another picture of a man who was made very holy in his generation And not only that, but in this one, we get to see how he became so holy. And then there was a glimpse of how God, I think, intends to make each of us into that sort of holy person. Let me recap the story before we dive into it. Uh, Some of you have been with us a while on this journey, and we're walking through 1 and 2 Kings together. Uh, We have two more sermons left, including this one. And I've said every week that these two books tell us the story of Israel's fall all the way from their golden age under King Solomon all the way down to the terrors of deportation under exile. Uh, Where we have gotten now, the kingdom has long been split into two kingdoms, Israel in the north and Judah in the south. And by the time we get to this story today, the northern kingdom in Israel is no more. Assyria has come, they have defeated them completely, and hauled all of them away. Then the nation of Assyria took other people they had conquered and resettled them in Israel. So now Israel is occupied by totally different people, ruled by Assyria, and in many ways out of the picture. And little Judah is left in the south. And the bad news is they're next. Babylon is going to come in and do the same thing to them. But we haven't quite gotten there yet. Before we get there, two kings rise up in Judah. One of them, Hezekiah, and the other one we'll read about today, who bring about holy reform. They set things to the right in Israel in many ways. And we're going to read about one of those reformers today. His name is Josiah. By the time he gets to the throne, things are so bad in Judah that they have no one to give the throne to except an eight-year-old boy. And so he takes the throne at eight years old. Blankets, temper tantrums, and all sitting on the throne in Israel. And the big twist in the story is that this little eight-year-old winds up being the best king that Judah ever had. So we're going to look at things a little different this morning. First, we're going to look at chapter 23, and I'm just going to fly through it with you. 
We're going to see the reforms that he did, the holy life that he lived. We're going to walk through it real fast. Then we'll go back and we'll actually read today's sermon text, which comes from chapter 22, where we see how he became this holy, righteous, zealous man. So of all the great sins that Israel had committed against God, the biggest ones were the sins of worship. They were supposed to worship only the Lord their God, only in the temple, and only the way that he said. And on all three of those, they failed miserably. They worshiped other gods alongside the Lord their God. They would leave the temple and go out to these high places and worship the Lord or the idols there where they were not supposed to worship. And they invented all these despicable practices in worship, even engaging in prostitution in the temple, sometimes supposedly in the worship of the Lord. Well, King Josiah rises up and says, no more of this. Let's look at chapter 23. We'll just zoom through it and see what he does. First, in verses one through three, he gathers the whole nation together And he reads the book of the law to them and says, all right, guys, we're going to do this stuff now. They make a covenant together saying, we are going to follow the Lord's ways. In verse four, you can see him taking away the objects that were used to worship the false gods of Baal and Asherah out of the temple and burning them. In verse five, He gets rid of the priests who led Israel to offer those false offerings to those false gods. I'll read verse 6 to you. He brought out the Asherah from the house of the Lord outside Jerusalem to the brook of Kidron, and he burned it in the brook of Kidron, and beat it to dust, and cast the dust of it upon the graves of the common people. You don't get more zealous than this. He is burning idols, grinding them to dust, and casting them over graves. Verse 7, he does something also very incredible. He broke down the houses of the male cult prostitutes who were in the house of the Lord where the women wove hangings of Asherah. In the house of the Lord, cult prostitution going on. He says, no more of this gets rid of that. In verse 8, he takes more priests out of commission who have done evil things, and he defiles more high places. In verse 10, he defiles some high places where people offered their children in sacrifice. He says, no more of that, and reforms that. In verse 11, he destroys the horses and the temples, I'm sorry, the horses and the chariots that were outside the temple and were dedicated not to the Lord, but to the sun and the sky. Gets rid of those. And in verse 14, you see him destroy more high places. So he has essentially purged his kingdom of Judah of any of this false worship. And he has done it with vigor and zeal. And he's not done. Verse 15, he turns his eyes to Bethel. That's outside of Judah. That's up in Israel, outside of his kingdom. He turns his eyes over there and does the same things there. And then over to Samaria, which is a little farther away in Israel, and does the same thing there and cleanses them. In verses 21 to 23, he leads Israel to keep the Passover according to the law for the first time in generations. He basically brings back Christmas, like we're going to do this again and we're going to do it the Lord's way. And all of this leads to this verse 25, the summary of his life. Before him, there was no king like him who turned to the Lord with all his heart and with all his soul and with all his might, according to all of the law of Moses, nor did any arise like him after him. 
So there we have then the best king that Judah ever had, King Josiah, who loved the Lord with all his heart and all his soul and all his mind and all his strength. Those words sound familiar. It's Jesus' greatest commandment, right? The command that is given to us. What's the greatest commandment? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength. And so what you have there in Josiah's life is a picture of what it looks like to love the Lord with all of your heart. It means going through your kingdom and saying, where is the slightest bit of unfaithfulness to the Lord my God? I'm going to get rid of it. All right. It means going through your heart and saying, where is the slightest bit of covetousness? I'm going to get it out of my heart. Where's the slightest bit of bitterness in my heart? I'm going to get it out. Going through your life, your kingdom, your heart with the same holy zeal that Josiah took throughout the kingdom and saying, out of love for the Lord our God, I am going to do this right. And so the question we got to ask is, how did he become that holy? How, how do you turn into that kind of person? How do we become the kind of people who love the Lord with all our heart and all our soul and all our mind and all of our strength? Well, to answer that question, we turn back to today's text, chapter 22, starting at verse 8. I'm going to read half the text now, and then I'll read half of it later after we take a break. Starting at verse 8. Well, I'll tell you what, I'll tell you a little bit of the story first. They are commissioning some work to be done in the temple. The temple is getting run down, and King Josiah says, all right, let's take this extra money, let's pay the workers in the temple to fix it up. So they're fixing up the temple, and here's what happens. And Hilkiah the priest said to Shaphan the secretary, I have found the book of the law in the house of the Lord. And Hilkiah gave the book to Shaphan, and he read it. And Shaphan the secretary came to the king, and he reported to the king, your servants have emptied out the money that was found in the house and have delivered it into the hand of the workmen who have oversight of the house of the Lord. And then Shaphan took the secretary, told the king, Hilkiah the priest has given me a book. And Shaphan read it before the king. Okay, so following the story here so far, they're doing this work in the temple and they come across the book of the law, which had evidently been lost. And so they, I don't know, dusted it off, opened it up and read it and said, oh, this is all the stuff that we were supposed to be doing the whole time. Probably either the first five books of the Bible, Genesis to Deuteronomy, or maybe just the book of Deuteronomy. Either of those are called the book of the law or the books of the law. They read it and they say, oh, we, we haven't been doing this, right? This, this is different from what we're doing. And so they're concerned, so they bring it to the king and they read it to the king. Now, before we go any farther, what I want to do is go back and read portions of that that Josiah would have heard in that day. So he would have at least probably heard the book of Deuteronomy read to him. Uh, this is a king who his father and his father before him and his father before him did not walk in the ways of the Lord. And they begin to read Deuteronomy to him, which outline all of the ways of God, all the laws they should have been following. And you can imagine him thinking, oh, we're, we're not doing that. Ooh, we didn't do that. Ooh, we're not doing this. Ooh, worship only the Lord our God. We, no, we, we're worshiping Asherah and Baal. Like, we're not doing this right is going to kind of be the cry of his heart. Let's flip back to Deuteronomy 27 together. 
the book kind of winds to a close here. The last few chapters of Deuteronomy outline blessings and curses for those who keep the law and those who don't keep the law. And beginning in verse 15, the first curse is, cursed be the man who makes a carved or cast metal image and abomination to the Lord. Now what was all over Israel in that day? Carved, cast, metal images. Can you imagine this king, cursed be the one who does this. Okay, next curse. Cursed be anyone who dishonors his father or his mother. Many of the kings of Israel had done that. Cursed be anyone who moves his neighbor's landmark. King Ahab before Josiah had done that. Cursed be anyone who misleads a blind man on the road. Cursed be anyone who perverts the justice due to the sojourner. On and on and on it goes outlining things that Josiah and his father had done and that all the people of Israel had done around them. Can you sense the terror that would be welling up in his heart as he realizes we are doing this wrong before the Lord? Then chapter 28 would outline the blessings that would have come their way if they had followed the Lord. But you can see in the beginning of verse 15 of chapter 28, the curses begin and how long that section is. It begins, but if you will not obey the voice of the Lord your God and be careful to do all of his commandments that I command you today, then all these curses shall come upon you and overtake you. Cursed shall you be in the city. Cursed shall you be in the field. Cursed shall you be your basket and your kneading bowl. And cursed shall be the fruit of your womb and the fruit of your ground and the increase of your herds and the young of your flock. Cursed shall be you when you come in and cursed you shall be when you go out. And on and on. You see how many paragraphs long this section is. So here is the king of Israel confronted with Israel's great sin before the Lord and the coming judgment. He looks it in the eye. And the key moment comes when he responds. How's he going to respond? How would you respond if you were met with your sin and God's judgment like that? Well, here's what he does. Back to 2 Kings 22, verse 11. When the king heard the words of the book of the law, he tore his clothes. And the king commanded Hilkiah the priests, and Ahikam the son of Shaphan, and Akbor the son of Micaiah, and Shaphan the secretary, and Isaiah the king's servant, saying, Go and acquire of the Lord for me, and for all the people, and for all Judah, concerning the words of this book that has been found, for great is the wrath of the Lord that is kindled against us, because our fathers have not obeyed the words of this book, to do according to all that is written concerning us. So Hilkiah the priest and Ahikam and Akbor and Shaphan and Asiah went to Huldah the prophetess, the wife of Shalom, the son of Tikvah, the son of Harhas, keeper of the wardrobe. Now she lived in Jerusalem in the second quarter, and they talked with her. And she said to them, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, tell the man who you sent to me, thus says the Lord, I will bring disaster upon this place and upon its inhabitants. And all the words of this book that the king of Judah has read, because they have forsaken me and have made offerings to other gods, that they might provoke me to anger with the work of their hands, and therefore my wrath will be kindled against this place, and it will not be quenched. But to the king of Judah, who sent you to inquire of the Lord, thus shall you say to him, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, 
regarding the words you have heard, because your heart was penitent and you humbled yourself before the Lord, when you heard how I spoke against this place and against its inhabitants, that they should become a desolation and a curse, and you have torn your clothes and wept before me, I also have heard you, declares the Lord. Therefore, behold, I will gather you to your fathers, and you shall be gathered to your grave in peace, and you shall not see all the disaster that I will bring upon this place. And they brought back word to the king. The words of the Lord. So, how did Josiah become a holy man? He humbled himself and he experienced God's mercy. That is how God makes people holy. And if you have a desire in your heart, a hunger and a thirst for righteousness, a desire to live in holiness yourself, what I want to tell you today is this is how the Lord would do it, by humbling you, softening your heart so that you might receive his mercy and then making you holy. Through this story, I believe that the Lord is moving his people to humble ourselves, delight in his mercy, and live holy lives uh, that could change a generation. Josiah lives out a pattern here that many people live out in the Old Testament, and this is simply to take the Lord seriously, to take his ways seriously, to take our sins seriously, and to take judgment seriously, and then humble ourselves and receive mercy. This is a pattern that, uh, that is shown to us throughout the, throughout the pages of the scripture. I'm sorry, I lost my train of thought there. And it is in contrast with the normal way that we would live. Now, we tend to go about our lives making much of ourselves, right? Uh, we tend to go about our lives making much of ourselves and less of God, right? Living day to day uh, as if God weren't there, as if he is not real, almost ignoring God, really, right? We tend to go about our lives making much of ourselves and less of his ways, right? Receiving his commands when they're convenient to us and make sense to us, rejecting them when they do not. We tend to go about our lives making much of ourselves and less of our sin, right? What's the most uncomfortable thing to talk about in the world? Your own sin, right? We would like to make very little of that and much of ourselves. And we certainly don't want to make much of God's judgment, do we? It's the scariest thing in the world. So we tend to make more of ourselves and less of his judgment. The pattern Josiah shows here is the very opposite. He makes less of himself and much of God in his ways. He makes less of himself and much of his own sin in Israel's sin. And he makes less of himself and much of God's judgment. This is what soft and humbled hearts do. And these are the hearts that receive God's mercy. These are the hearts that once they receive God's mercy, turn into holy people. Josiah humbled himself and received God's mercy in his day. And he knew the greatness of God's judgment. He knew the greatness of his sin. But he did not know something that you and I can know, something that you can know today. Yes, you can know that the Lord gives mercy to the humble, but you can know a step further. You can know that he does so through his son, Jesus Christ. Right? 
And that to those who would humble ourselves and see the greatness of our sin against God, see the terror of the judgment that is coming and would cry out to him for mercy, we can find that those storm clouds that have gathered of God's very judgment soon to break over our heads could be emptied upon the head of Jesus Christ instead of upon us. This is the good news of Jesus Christ. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ, which is pictured so much in the Old Testament, but never quite said by name. We can look to Jesus Christ and find full forgiveness to all of our sins. But what's the path to getting there? Well, the path to getting there is the same path Josiah went on, right? The path of seeing him as great, seeing his ways as great, seeing our sin as great, and seeing God's judgment as great. Only then, if we're willing to make less of ourselves and more of that, are we willing to look to God and say, God, I need forgiveness, right? A heart that is hard, by contrast, and does not want to admit that our sin is great before God and does not want to think about the fact that judgment is coming, that's not a heart that's going to look to the Lord and ask for mercy because that's a heart that doesn't think that it needs mercy. And so the pathway to receiving the gospel, what the Lord takes our heart through is this very same pattern that Josiah goes through, seeing how good the Lord's ways were, humbling ourselves and receiving mercy. And so here's the call I make to everyone today. If you would find yourself forgiven before God, if if you would find yourself even lifted up before him instead of having your head cast down, here's what you must do. Just turn from sin and trust Jesus Christ for salvation. That is plain and simple, the gospel message, and I call you to place your faith in it today. Now, if we're willing to do that and receive mercy, then the Lord begins to change us and make us holy as he did for Josiah. There are a lot of stories in the Bible that illustrate this. Uh, I'll tell you one. One day, Jesus was dining with a Pharisee, and a woman who lived a very sinful life came into the dinner. And uh, everyone looked at her and knew that she was one of those people that you, you, know, you don't talk to and you don't mess with. Uh, but she came right up to Jesus, and she began to weep before his feet and to wash his feet with her tears and then with her hair. And she had brought a jar of really expensive ointment, and she began to anoint his feet with this ointment, uh, just pouring out devotion upon him. And the Pharisee they were having dinner with just said, what, what, why are you even letting this woman do it? What's going on here? And so Jesus tells him a story. He says, well, a certain man had two debtors. Uh, one owed him 50 days wages, and the other one owed him 500 days wages. And he forgave them both. Who do you think would love that man more? And the Pharisee answers wisely, well, the one that owed him more money would love him more. And Jesus says, yes, the the one who has been forgiven little loves little. And the one who has been forgiven much loves much. Right? When, When you receive God's mercy and you see how great it is, there is the source, there is the fuel for our love for Jesus. And if we would like to love the Lord our God with all our heart, all our soul, all our mind, all our strength like Josiah did, the key to getting there is cherishing his mercy and seeing how very much we have been forgiven, just like he did. That truth is spoken in many places in the New Testament. You can think of Romans 12, uh, verse 1. Uh, which has the same pattern, right? God's mercy and then our holiness. It says, therefore, I urge you by the mercies of God, 
to offer yourself as a holy sacrifice, right? holy and pleasing to God, not being conformed to this world. The logic there is you have been given mercy and so receive it and offer yourself as a holy sacrifice to God. You can think of 2 Corinthians 7 verse 1, which says essentially the same thing. Since we have received these great promises, let us cleanse ourselves of every defilement and bring holiness to completion. What's, what's the fuel for holiness? Receiving the mercies and the promises of God. That's the fuel. Or you can think of 1 Peter 1, verses 13 to 16, which say, first, to set our hope fully upon Jesus Christ, and then call us to live in holiness. Same pattern over and over again in the Bible, receiving God's mercy and then becoming holy. We see it in the life of Peter, who was given great mercy by our Lord and began to live a holy life himself. We see it in Israel. We see it all over the place. What's the key to personal holiness? receiving God's mercy and cherishing it. So then, if you were left last week just longing for holiness, well, blessed are those for hunger and thirst for righteousness. They will be satisfied. What's the key to it? Cherish the mercy of God that has been given to you. It means a couple of things for us. First, if you are trying to clean yourself up before you come to Jesus, I want you to know that you're doing it backwards. It can't work that way. You will never clean yourself up enough to be worthy of coming to Jesus. But if you will come to him as you are, if you will come to him confessing your sin to him and looking for mercy, what you will find is not only mercy, but everything you need for life and godliness to begin living a holy life. You don't clean yourself up before you come to Jesus. You come to Jesus first, and he cleans you up. And so come to Jesus first. For those of us who have come to Jesus, it means that a key to your growing in holiness is just letting the tough truths of the Bible humble you. Uh, the Bible says a lot of things that, uh, that we don't like, doesn't it? Um, I think of Psalm 14, which says of every human being, their throat is an open grave. Anybody feel warm and fuzzy when I tell you your throat is an open grave? No, right? What does an open grave smell like? Right? Psalm 14 says that's the kind of stuff that comes out of our mouths, stuff that putrid. Now you hear that, you hear your preacher say that, and you're like, man, thanks a lot, right? Uh, what do we do with that? Well, in the same way that King Josiah was humbled by those hard truths, we have to look at it with a soft and humble heart that says, yeah, that makes me think of that one thing I said to that one person. And that other thing that I said to that, yeah, it turns out my throat is an open grave. Now, if we can take our sin more seriously and take ourselves less seriously, then we're looking to the Lord for mercy, and then we can grow in holiness. So, pausing to let those tough truths of the Bible speak to you and humble you is part of how God is growing you in holiness. Other tough truths in the Bible, just coming face to face with Noah's flood is, is tough. I mean, the Lord killed everybody, everybody except eight people on the planet. And the only two ways I can think of to reconcile that are either our God is a terrible and wicked God or we all deserved it. And which one is it? We all deserved it. 
right? If God can righteously flood the whole planet, we must look to that with humility and say, that is what we deserve. Now, if we can humble ourselves like that and look to him and say, God, would you give us mercy? We deserve another flood. Would you have mercy on us? That sort of soft-heartedness, that sort of humility leads to the mercy that then grows us in holiness. So Christians, as you are reading through the Bible, as we come through tough truths in the scripture, let them speak to you and let them humble you. Let the great truths of the Bible humble you as well. When you get to Moses parting the Red Sea by the power of God, I mean, that's just got to stir up your heart to say, this God is great. And if he is that great, oh boy, I am small and I'm okay with that because he is great. Let the great truths of the Bible humble you, let you cry out to the Lord for mercy and watch the Lord grow you in holiness. Great truths like John 3.16, right? I'm glad that one sticks in people's minds. God so loved the world, same world that deserved to get flooded, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever should believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. Now, if you can humble yourself enough to say, I need that, that is how the Lord grows us in holiness. That is the fuel for our holiness. Or the way that he changed the apostle Paul, offering him mercy, appearing before him and calling him to himself. The man used to kill Christians. And the Lord says, I choose you. I want to have mercy on you. If we can cherish God's mercy like that, how he might grow us in holiness. Christian, let the great truths of the Bible and let the hard truths of the Bible humble your heart that you might cherish his mercy and grow in holiness. We can do the same thing when looking around outside. You can learn so much wisdom just looking at nature because it just is what it is and you can't really change it, right? Tomato plants grow the way they grow and you just have to submit to that if you want to grow tomatoes. Cicadas are just loud and they just are and you can't really do anything about it, right? And so when we look to the way God made those things, uh, we can learn lessons. What kind of God, I mean, one cicada is so, just so loud. I can remember nights in my bed hearing one cicada in the yard and wanting to get up and go and crush that one cicada because it was keeping me up. But the way the Lord does this thing is for, I guess it's for 17 years, they just live as eggs or larvae or something under the ground and come up in a swarm once every 17 years, loud enough to, to almost deafen you, as loud as a circular saw when they cover a tree, make it a whole tree brown instead of green because they're all over the thing. You walk out outside and the noise just overwhelms you. What kind of God makes that? An overwhelming God. A God whose power is so immense that he could just make little bugs to make more noise than we can stand. If you want to let that humble you, there's a lesson there. There's wisdom there. Harder lessons to learn in some of the hard realities of life. We have had a hard time as, as a people, and I mean the whole country, the West, all together even, just reckoning with coronavirus. Like, like what kind of world does that happen in? 
right? And our, and our like beautiful ivory tower we've built here in the West, like that stuff is not supposed to happen, right? Pandemics are not supposed to come through and just take people's lives like this. What's, what's, what's going on? And there are hard lessons there. If, if the Lord can move something like that through the whole world and take the lives of that many people, we have to admit that he doesn't owe life to any of us. That's the only way we can reckon with what has happened in the last year and a half. Now, if we will let the hard truths of the world humble us and say, God, none of us deserve to live. God, would you show us mercy? There's the fuel for holiness, Calvary. That humility that could look to God for mercy and say, we don't deserve any better than this. Our God is good and he gives mercy to those who look to him and ask for it. Let that joy be your fuel for holiness. This is why I think it is so important as a Christian to practice regular confession of sin. It's not the most fun thing to do in the world, but it is quite refreshing to just every morning look over the last day and think, okay, what are all the things I did I shouldn't have done? Bring those to God and say, God, I did this, it was wrong, will you forgive me? Now, why is that an important part of growing in holiness? Well, because receiving God's mercy is the fuel for your holiness. If you can start every morning knowing that you can bring all of your sins before God and find forgiveness, there's the fuel for holiness. There's the fuel for a life like Josiah's that just goes through the whole kingdom and says, we are setting this right. Why? Because the Lord has shown us mercy. And this is why it is so important for us to practice the Lord's Supper together regularly, as we are about to do. Why would we do a, a little feast like this so often? Because we need God's mercy, and we need to be reminded of God's mercy, right? Uh, we need the bread and the cup to tell us there is a seat at this table for everyone, and we are welcome to sit and dine with him. And so that's what we do now. We celebrate the supper together, and we celebrate God's mercy together. I want to ask our deacons to take a time now to, to come forward and help us by passing it out in a few moments. If you guys would just wait right here, we'll pass it in a second. And if you're playing music for it, come on up as well.